Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey. The function of structural violence is to establish and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities among individuals, social groups, and social classes. Inequalities of rights, responsibilities, and opportunities among people of a society are unlikely to ever be established and maintained voluntarily. Rather, their establishment requires coercion in the form of initiating physical violence, which is gradually complemented by a consciousness of submission, resulting from ideological indoctrination or the colonization of people's minds. Structural violence leads its victims to counterviolence. This counterviolence is not directed at the sources, beneficiaries, or actors furthering injustice. Instead, victims of structural violence tend to prep- perpetuate counterviolence in their own communities through domestic violence, sexual assault, crime, addictions, mental illness, and suicide. Structural violence. That is my starting point, people, structural violence. And I just read to you an excerpt from the book, Human Behavior in the Social Environment by Rudolph Alexander Jr. This is one of my staples. This is one of my books that's not even, it's not on a bookshelf, it's in a basket. I don't read to you. I don't read from it often to you, but it is, um, it is a staple for me as I, um, process my orientation to the social world. So I use this book a lot in my research, um, in my work, but also in my, as I regulate myself in the social world. And that text, um, I stumbled across it. Actually, I was looking for, uh, some anchor text to start talking to you this morning. And it was something about, I wanted to look for this, something about the structural world. And the, it's, it, this is so interesting because the book in the index, cause you know, I'll go to the, I'll have an idea, then I'll go to the index. Well, the book, there was nothing indexed under structural, which was interesting. So my eye, my eyes popped up to like the index will have words and then it'll have like a list of sub themes. Well, structural violence was a sub theme to, I think, suicide. So I would have never found this because I was, you know, suicide was really what was in the index and then structural violence was a sub theme. And so let me just something said, let me go read that. And as soon as I read it, I was like, nope, that's the, that's exactly what we need. And so there are um, about four sub themes for me that I want to talk about over the past week that I've been either engaging in or processing. I want to try to find a way to link it to this foundational text or my anchor text around structural violence. Um, and so we'll see I, um, some good, some really good news that I want to share with you. Some some updates that uh, I want to do on the other side of the disclaimers, um, but we're gonna we're gonna use uh, structural violence as our anchor, and there's a lot a lot to say. That text was loaded, wasn't it? There's a lot to say, and so um, let's hang tight. <laughs> let's do this together, okay? Hey, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. 
Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into the tenets of critical race feminism, which basically means I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs of power, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, just to name a few. This project is unedited and is unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. So it's been a minute since I haven't had to rush my disclaimers because I'm trying to get it all under five minutes. So that felt really good to be able to do the disclaimers in this very relaxed way. And I'm still under five minutes, yo. So let me do a little bit of um, housekeeping. And um, and then we'll start talking about structural violence. So I um, I do want to just say this to you all. I want to give a couple of updates. Um, I want to give the good news first and the bad news, um, just because I don't I don't want to c- come after that bad news and try to sound all poly positive and all of that. So the good news um, that. Uh, I want to share with you all is I, I am sitting on the edge of signing two contracts for my business. Oh my gosh. It is, it's amazing, scary, surreal, like unbelievable. And then I'm a little bit nervous to talk about it too soon because we haven't signed the contract. So whereas one uh, client and I, we've been um, kind of getting some uh, agreements on paper. We've got a Google Doc going and we're building it. And um, there was a deadline as it, related to, it relates to funding that we needed to have a commitment to work together by yesterday. And uh, Um, I'm sorry, just something just hit me as I started thinking about dates. I'm sorry. <laughs> that hasn't happened in a while. But when I first started this project, I talked about how um, as an NI dumb, something, a branch of, of thinking can uh, happen in my head. And I'm not even aware that it snatches me out of the physical world. It literally just snatches me out. And um, I think that's my NI dumb self. Um, but when I'm more controlled and focused with my TE, that doesn't happen. But like literally something just snatched me out of physical. I was in my head for a second. So uh, let me try to get back. Um, yeah, so we were um, trying to get this commitment down by the 30th. And so I don't really plan on, uh, I don't like working on the weekends. But I also understand that as I move forward in this world, work in my new world that I'm building, right? I'm building my, I'm reinventing myself, if you will. Eh, I don't like to say reinventing. This is the invention that I've had for myself for a long time. I'm just finally able to move closer to it. So anyway, so that we've been playing with some words and this Google document. And um, that feels really, really good. And then the second client, um, we're really at, I would say, 
at the start of some negotiations. So they want something from me. I'm a little bit nervous about it. I think I may have mentioned it to you because they actually contacted me first two weeks ago and said, hey, we want to bring you in as a consultant. Um, and uh, so it's been two weeks of us playing phone tag of trying to get connected to begin the negotiations. And one of the things that's happening is that they're dealing with some chaos, if you will. Um, and that chaos is furthering more chaos. So they don't even have the space to, to say, okay, let's bring in, bring in this consultant that's going to help us, right? The chaos is so dominating that they don't have the, the, the wherewithal or the time to say, wait a minute, you know, because we have to, like, we're going to have to just ignore the chaos for a minute just to have this conversation so that that's the only way we're going to get out of the chaos. Otherwise, that chaos will continue to recycle and reproduce itself. So we finally had our first conversation um, of, like, the start of the negotiations. We've talked before, like, I, I, what is the word? Like, idealizing, yeah, I think I want to say that. You know, envisioning, we did that a couple of months ago, but uh, we finally had a conversation where we started, like, really talking about a con- like what the contract would be. And, um, and they were going to actually even cancel it, the, the conversation. But let's say yesterday, Friday, they were going to cancel the conversation on Friday because they felt, um, because one of the, one of the leaders was, she was sick. And I was like, yeah, but if there are two, if I'm meeting with the three of you, can I still meet with two of you while the third one is sick? So I didn't know how they were going to receive that, but because I had such a strong conversation with the the other client, you know, I was like, well, I need to be asset driven and not deficit driven. And being asset driven means I'm moving forward in these business relationships based on my strengths, not based on desperation. And I don't think I would have been asset driven had I not met with the other client first. Um, cause the other client is so in my sweet, it's so in my sweet spot. It's amazing. It's in my sweet spot ideologically. It's in my sweet spot in terms of the work that they want me to do. It's in my sweet spot in terms of my comfort level with the, the principal investigator, like, excuse me, excuse me, the principal negotiator, the person I'm doing the negotiating with. So it's all sweet, sweet, sweet. <laughs> and they came along. I got a message from them on Thursday. Uh, I, I don't know if I told you guys, but I have seven prospects, seven organizations, seven schools or districts that I'm prospecting to bring me in as a consultant, right? So I'm up to seven. And I'm working those seven, those seven prospects. Um, and I'm learning, right? Cause I have not done this. Even when I had my own school, I was, I was in business for myself, but it was a different type of business. But moving forward as a consultant, which was something for a long time I didn't want to do. But for some reason now, not for some reason now, as I move more into understanding myself as a solo person, it makes complete sense that I'm doing, um, I'm moving down this path for consulting, but I got to learn it, right? I got to learn what does that mean? And, 
you know, initially I was trying to learn how do you initiate, how do you initiate a lead? How do you initiate a contact? How do you start the conversation? So I feel pretty good. I got about three strategies that I use to initiate a, like a conversation with, um, with a, with a, with a decision maker. Like I don't like to negotiate with people who are not the decision maker, the person who signs the contract, the person who signs the money. And I've had to, I had, to, I've had to play there where I had people who wanted to redirect me and have me engage with like a middle manager. And I would say, no, I will, I'll wait. If you're not, you as the key decision maker, you as the principal decision maker, if you're not ready, then I will wait for you. And I know when I did it, I felt like I was taking a risk. I was a little bit nervous, like, what if I now lose that opportunity because I wasn't willing to kind of work with them the way they wanted me to work with them. But I I held true to, I believe I should be talking to the decision maker. Now, I can I can talk to them middle managers later, absolutely. But based on my strengths and how I interact with people, it is going to be to my best advantage to build a relationship with that, the controller of the purse. So anyway, so I've been prospecting several people, excuse me, seven. I'm up to seven now. I got my seventh one maybe two weeks ago. And so now I'm learning how to nurture those relationships because what I learned early on is just because you get the uh, their audience, you get an audience with them, you have a powerful con- conversation. You send a beautiful proposal, right? Like I've done those things. I'm very confident about it. I've had to learn how to do it, but I'm really excited that I've done. A, my learning curve was pretty fast. Initiating, having that first meeting, doing a proposal, but that wasn't leading to a close. I wasn't getting the sale. And I'm like, oh, what am I missing? What am I missing? I don't know how to sell yet. I'm, I mean, I don't know how to sell. I don't know how to close the sale. So now I'm doing what's called learning how to nurture the relationship. Um, because so, and I'm sorry, I'm in a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it is something I wanted to share with you all the same. And it's going to relate to structural violence in a second. Um, Oh God, I just lost my train of thought. So let me just say this. Um, so I was, I contacted someone who gave me my first two leads. Um, and actually these are the two people that are, uh, looking to work with me. So there's going to be a pattern that I will discover. And the pattern could be, and I don't want to jinx it, but like how you get referred. How do you get connected to a lead? If who the, if the person that is recommending you has a high status or high credibility, then I get to borrow that credibility by, you know, I mean, and so I want to do a good job with these two contracts so that they will then give, be a referrer. You know, they will refer me and someone else will respect me because they respect them as referrers. So that's how I'm thinking it's going to roll out. But Um, I have two other, um, I have two other strategies that I'm not willing to say won't give me a contract, you know, two other lead generating strategies. Well, well, this is very new. You guys, I just ended my job (laughs) June 30th. Right. And so here we are September 30th and September 30th. I have in three months, I've been able to land a con, you know, land two contracts, even though they're not signed yet. We're there. And, uh, one, the one has language. We've, we're already 
building the, the language of the contract. And the second one, we're starting the conversation. But let me just say this. So I was talking to the person who, was, who had referred me to those two. And I was just like, I don't know how to close. Like there's something, there's something I must be doing wrong because they haven't called me to say, yes, I'm ready to do the work with you. Although I know we've had some really good interactions. We've had good phone conversations. We've had good meetings. We've had a, you know, a, a, a positive response to the po- to the proposal I sent. Why am I not closing? And she said, which was such a positive, uh, deposit into me as this, as I venture off into this new world of business, she was so positive, powerful. She said, she said, they're going to contact you when there's an urgent need. More than likely, they're not going to contact you a minute before then. When there's a problem is when they're going to contact you. See, I'm trying to present a, a solution to a problem that's not immediate. See, I thought it was immediate because they're talking about it. But apparently it's not immediate enough. There's no urgency there. So unfortunately, the problems that we're talking about solving, if they don't attend to it, then something, a crisis will be born. And then that problem will have urgency to it. It'll have immediacy to it. So in both situations, when they con- both situations contacted me, in an urgent space. It was fascinating to watch it. She said it. She told me that two, three weeks ago. She said, they're going to call you when they're facing a problem. A different problem. Like a more urgent problem. That then they're going to be able to connect to this larger problem. She said, they're going to call you. And sure enough, they did. And one, one of the con, one of the clients said, he said, I feel bad. He said, I've had you waiting. For three months. And now I'm asking you to go in to negotiate a contract with me within a day. And I was like, that's fine. I I think, I think had she not had my, this lady not given me the heads up, I probably would have felt some kind of way around the, the justice of it all. But I was like, well, that makes, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, now I'm kind of anticipating that. So. That's how you close. <laughs> That's how you close. You wait for some kind of crisis or urgency and you stay on their radar. You stay on the radar. You nurture those relationships so that when a crisis come up, comes up, you'll be the first one that they call as opposed to other people um, that could do the job. So we'll see you guys. This is, I'm learning this. <laughs> and I think this is what's so exciting is that I'm still in my work. I'm still in my wheelhouse. And I'm still at the intersections of education and social science. And I feel so blessed for that. That's my, that's, I'm a subject matter expert when it comes to education and the social sciences. But I get a chance to learn now on not even, like, I even feel like I have some expertise around business, right? I got some business skills, excuse me, because of my background and as a business owner. Um, so I have that. I don't think I, I don't, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I feel like I'm proficient when it comes to business. But this work as consulting is so new, like so new that I'm excited that I get to still be an expert, still have proficiency, and then still be able to learn something new. So I wanted to share that with you all. And that definitely relates to this 
bigger conversation on structural violence in this really weird way. So I'm going to park. There's more I want to share with you about um, not the business itself, but how the business fits into the life that I'm trying to build for myself, this grand mastermind. Um, I'd like to process that with you some more, but let me back, let me go back to the intent of the, let me go back to the text and do some storytelling about some things that, other things that happened this week, um, and then connecting it all to structural violence. So one thing I wanted, another thing I wanted to share with you, um, and I'm going to make this connection to structural violence direct, and I'm going to hopefully end on making the connection between my business and structural violence. Hopefully, if I don't get lost, let's see. So you guys know that I'm subbing, um, I, which was part of the Ground Zero infrastructure. So two episodes ago, I did an episode, two episodes ago, I had a conversation about Ground Zero. Ground Zero is the framework, the structure, the bones for this thing that I'm building, my life, this lifestyle that I want. And for so long, what I was building was about altruism, was about having an impact in the world, right? For so long, I identify as a, um, as a social change agent and, uh, I want to promote social change in the world. And that's why I'm doing this business. And then when my world fell apart, I couldn't focus on having impact. It never was gone from me, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't do any work on the big picture because I was focused on survival and getting back on my feet and trying to decide what does that mean for me? Um, because I think, and I told you guys this, there's a moment where I tried to entertain this idea of living a more, a really modest life, like, like, I come from low income, so lower socioeconomic background. I know how to live off of 15 cents. I know how to live and survive off of very little money. So if that's going to keep me happy, <laughs> right? If making the money is causing me some distress, then the first strategy that I begin to think about is don't make the money. Don't make the money because if the making the money is causing you unhappy, unhappiness and really really it was a lot of times it was emotionally destabilizing for me so I entertained for a window of I would say probably a year where like I'm just gonna be a pauper is that a word just just gonna be low income (laughs) what I learned though the eight part of me was like no we can't do that like the INTJ part of me was like let's strategize we can do this right I see how creative and clever and uh, I can be to live about off of very little money. Like there was a, there was something quite enticing for me intellectually as an INDJ. Like, let me show you, I can do it. But the eight part of me couldn't handle that. And it's not just because I want grandness, bigness, because eight's like big. Um, because I never was going to give up on, like, my big, I'm not um, materially big as much as I am conceptually big, ideologically big, right, as an N.I. Dom. Like, I, I think big, big ideas, big vision. 
have a huge appetite for growth and a huge appetite for learning and a huge appetite for impact. So that's my big as an eight. Um, and I'm, you guys, if you're new, I don't have this in my disclaimers, but if you are new to the, this project and you are not into personality theory, you do need to go <laughs> and do some homework around um, I, uh, the Myers-Briggs. I'm an INTJ in that system. So if nothing else, learn about the INTJ, just so you'll know when I start talking about cognitive functions, N-I-T-E-F-I-S-E, I'm like, what the hell? You'll know. And then um, I'm an eight in the Enneagram, and you'll understand why I'm referencing that at certain times of the reflection. But eights are big. They have a big appetite. They just take up a lot of, some eights take up a lot of space, but my bigness is not in the physical. Um, at least I'm not, mm, that's not completely true. That is not true. <laughs> in my workspace, I'm very big. I take up a lot of space. I dominate a lot of space. It's, it's really quite fascinating to juxtapose who I am at work versus who I am in my personal social life. Um, and I think it's caused some tension for me with people. And I, I should do an episode on that. Like, Yo, <laughs> because those are, it's almost like two different me. It's almost like, like there are two different versions of me, the social me and the work me. And some people would minimize it. And it depends on your stack, right? So for me, social isn't at the top of my stack. Work is. Why is work at the top of my stack? Not because of money. Work is at the top of my stack because of my INTJ-ness. Like the, as an INTJ, I enjoy thinking, envisioning, strategizing, planning, building, you understand, impacting. I enjoy that. It's not just that I enjoy it. I need it. It's like a lifeline for me. Well, social relationships don't allow me to do all of that, but work does. So therefore, work becomes a bigger part of my life than the social. And it took me a while to be at peace with that because I didn't know I was doing something wrong by pursuing work, all of my work projects, whether I was getting paid for it or not, right? When I say work, I mean using my skills. Um, and it's not limited to employment. And then I, st I had a few people who came in my life in my uh, mid to late 30s who told me that was wrong. It's like, oh, you're, you're working too much. Life isn't about work. My dad used to say that. He said, you, you work to live. You don't live to work. And so I tried to build um, a life where work was secondary. And I think that's all of that was falling apart. It wasn't just the relationship that disabled me. It was what I was doing with the relationship. I was trying to put the relationship as first and my other work world second. And that just was destabilizing for me. It wasn't, it just didn't work. Anyway, anyway, several rabbit holes here. So let me try to get back. So I, um, and I, anyway, I know some of you hear these stories on repeat and I, I, I think that these stories that are repeating themselves are going to be like chapters in the book that I'll, that I know I'm going to write. Um, because uh, all, all the books that I have written are all about education, but I want to write a book um, as it relates to the self, more more aligned to the social science, social psychology, 
so I, there's a book that is, I've drafted it, excuse me, I've outlined it a couple of times, but I haven't been ready to commit to writing. This is going to be a, I'm still trying to finish up some education text. <laughs> so like I have, I feel like I have two, one to two more education books that I need to write. And then I'm going to write this book as it relates to the self in, in the social psychology. Anyway, anyway, so anyway, I went through a phase where I was like, okay, now I got to get back on my feet. Um, but I don't need a lot of money. I need to be happy. I need to be balanced. I need to be well. And I don't want to go back into a world, a work world, um, that just doesn't fit me anymore. So I was like, I'm just going to be broke. I'm going to be okay with that. But as a type eight, that wasn't enough because, um, I learned early, I learned really fast that people interact with you based on the material that you have, the material, uh, things that you have. They judge you based on your, um, based on a couple of things, based on your job, based on how much money you make, based on your material possession. I hate it. I hate that. And I could disrupt that. And I try to disrupt it as much as possible. But I cannot allow someone to talk. I just cannot walk around in the world for people to assume that just because I don't have a lot of money means I don't have intellect. And the moment that my intellect was being questioned or minimized or overlooked because people were judging me on the outside, making, calculating, you know, what I'm driving, what I live in, what I do for a living or what I don't do for a living. And then they were using, they were making an assessment on my intellectual capacity. That is where my, I couldn't do it anymore. I don't know if other INTJs have experienced this. Or have even taken themselves through an experiment of saying, hey, let's, let's sanitize, let's strip me. I'm going to strip myself from all material possessions, strip myself from all professional accolades, right? And let's see how people engage me, which is probably why a lot of INTJs don't engage in the world. But I'm a social, I'm a social eight. I'm a social INTJ. So I probably mainly because of my occupation and I guess my family, I come from a big family. And so, uh, yeah, when I started finding people talking to me as though I don't know how to uh, move about in the world because I don't have possessions, I was like, mm-mm, that's not going to work. And so um, I, I, I had to reroute my plan. And so you guys know I went back into the job market and I went back into the job. And then um, because of my credentials, you know, I... Definitely should be at the top of the hierarchy. If unfortunately that's gross, like I don't like hierarchies, but I'm in an industry that's highly hierarchical, right? So the industry is hierarchical. I, I didn't control that. I didn't dictate it, but I sure as hell, I'm not going to be at the bottom of that hierarchy. So then I started doing things that I needed to do to get to the top of the hierarchy. Okay. I got to the top of that hierarchy. I was miserable. I was miserable. It was miserable. And what I was doing, and I talked about this, uh, I talked about this several times recently. I was, I was allowing myself to be lulled by the money. I was allowing myself to be like, well, the money's good. It's okay to be miserable. <laughs> like, I don't even think I wanted to admit to myself that I was miserable because to admit to myself that I was miserable in it would been to have to then confront it. And problem solve that. And I really, really love the money. Um, and I love the money, not because of the material possessions that it gave me. 
but it gave me an element of control, control over my own life, gave me a sense of security and all of those things I need as a type eight. Those are very type eight staples, if you will. So ground zero was, um, so I'm not, so when I talk about ground zero and masterminding, I'm no longer um, masterminding solely about impact in the world. It's still there. But honestly, and it could be because I'm older now, whereas having an impact in the world was first for so long, I didn't, I didn't even build other skills to take care of myself. All right. The hardship happened. Liquefaction happened. I had to build myself up. I now know how to take care of myself. And I now know that taking care of myself is a first. It is the top of the stack. You know, they talk about in the airplane, if something happens with that plane, you put the mask on yourself first, then you put it on the child. Because if you got to take care of you first, I can't do change in the world if I'm falling apart, right? So I have had to literally learn that lesson in the last five years, which is really profound. Last five years, I've learned that lesson. All right. Now, now that I learned the lesson about taking care of myself first before I can do impact, that then I had to go, okay, well, what's the right structure for it? And this is where I was struck. I was like looping here for a while because I knew I still needed, you know, I, all of those other learnings are still true. I still, I can't go back into poverty. So ranking up in that hierarchy was not good for me, but to come out of that hierarchy and be poor again, that's not going to be good for me. Right? So what do I do in that? And then, yeah, I can go back into business, but the business model that I had, because I didn't want to be a, what's called, I didn't want to be a solopreneur. Um, I didn't want to be a consultant. I wanted to, I am very much in love with organizational structure, organizational development, organizational leadership. Like I, that's the kind of business I want to be in, not where I'm doing one-on-one with a client, right? Because that's too, it's going to be requiring me to do a lot of F.E., <laughs> You know what I mean? And FI. I can do FI. I'm not going to, you know, we'll see. Pray for me. And so I'm like, I don't want to do one-on-one consulting work because I have to then, I want to do structural work, right? Organizationally. But it's going to take time to build that organization. And so it's just been a, a very interesting loop that I've been in. And because of the two storms that I, um, I've been in the last two, excuse me, six months, well now, at the start of the year, I was like, we, it is no longer optional for you to not have a, um, a strategy. It's just not an option anymore. And so ground zero was really the infrastructure for me to be able to have impact in the world and take care of myself. And it gives me a starting place. And I said all of that to tell you that subbing, being a substitute teacher was my, it's like, um, it's a critical piece of the infrastructure because subbing does this. And I, I, you guys have to allow me to be on repeat because what I'm doing Part of this repetition for me is reaffirming the strategy. Like I put a strategy in place and I'm now walking it. So I'm walking it and I'm calibrating it and I'm affirming myself in it because I'm around a lot of worker bees. 
There's nobody, there's very, there are very few people around me who can affirm, who can affirm what I'm doing entrepreneurially. Who's, who can affirm me and say, I'm trying to build a life that is going to be suitable to my mental wellness. Right? I know so many people who take drugs, not, not recreational drugs, but pro, prescription drugs for their mental wellness. And without getting to the root of the problem, most of us are in environments that are causing mental unwellness. Most of us are disconnected from our true selves, and that's causing mental unwellness, emotional unwellness. And I'm saying, I don't want that. Do I want the money to be high up in the system? Excuse me, do I want the money? Absolutely. Do I have the capacity to be at the top of the absolutely and I'm trained to I'm trained for leadership. I'm trained and I'm experienced as a leader. I can do it. But how I lead and what I'm leading for cannot be hijacked. I cannot lead for structural violence, which gets to this book, right? Because all of it in my in there's a lot of structural violence in my industry and in my world. And I do not want to be, I don't want to be complicit in that. So anyway, so subbing was a, is a critical piece because it allows me to pay my basic, allows me to pay my bills. It was going to, it's going to be tight, but it's, if it's just because it's, it's still right, it's tight, but it's right. And, um, and it still, it gives me flexibility. It gives me autonomy and it gives me control to be like, yo, I'm not in this for you. I'm in here. I'm going to do, I'm providing a service. You need a substitute. You need a teacher here. I can do that for you, but I am not a teacher. I'm not your teacher. I don't have to follow your plan and I'm free. And that was good. And I don't know if the universe was waiting for me to just embrace what that like, you know, like I waited, I've been working with these prospects all summer. And right when I started subbing, did I get a phone call? Say, hey, we're ready to work with you. Well, it could be that it was at the start of the school year. That's possible. It could just be, or it could be spiritual that getting to that place with subbing, like, I don't know, like, so, in, I mean, and as a sub, like I told you guys last week or two weeks ago, maybe last week I told this to you, I make less than I make as a teacher and less than half of what I made last year, right? So that's not fun. And as an eight to go in a building and people treat subs as the, you know, you want to talk about teachers being at the bottom of the hierarchy, well, subs are lower than teachers, right? And so that's not fun, <laughs> right? And what's been, what happened to me this week, a little bit last week, irritated me because they're coming in my, my class. I got, well, I'm subbing in one room, right? And I'm, I'm bringing it together. This, 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 those, I got a sixth grade group. Sixth grade, they're so cute, which is, just a subject, a great level that I have, 
I know really, really well. And it used to be my favorite grade to teach, but because they're so squirrely and I'm older now, I didn't really want to take this. I was trying to get an eighth grade classroom, right? <laughs> or maybe seventh grade. I didn't want to do sixth grade because sixth graders are squirrely, squirrely. I'm like, sit down, be quiet. <laughs> Anyway, but that's what this particular site wanted. So I'm in the sixth grade classroom and I'm, you know, I'm in my, this is what I do. This is what I know. I know instruction and uh, I'm putting it down. And, uh, you know, I think I told you that someone told me that, I don't know if I said this, but she's one of my colleagues at the, at the, at the site, the sub site where I'm subbing said, I'm just going to tell you what I told the principal. She said, I'm in awe of you. <laughs> she said, I'm in awe of what you've been able to do in a week. She said, other people need to come in your class, this classroom, to see what you do and how you do it. And while I was, that was a compliment and definitely was affirming and I definitely appreciated, there was another part of it was like, uh-uh, because then you're going to, I'm not training you. I'm not here to train. I'm getting paid a sub-salary, right? You're not getting ready to get trainer from me. And so, um, so that was that. And, but then the principal came in my room and he was taking some data, taking, taking like pulling data and doing analysis. And I was like, you shouldn't be in my class. I'm a sub. You should not be in my class doing a review and collecting data. Uh, and I really, really took issue with that. I did not like it. And so I had to do a lot of self-talk. Uh, the eight, the eight me didn't, I don't want to be taken advantage of already. Like they, they keep asking me to do things because I am a certified teacher, but I'm not in a certified teaching position. I'm in a sub position. I have to keep telling them, no, I'm subbing. And so I was like, ah, I think I told you guys this last week, like, oh, is this going to be tricky then? But I worked it out. I worked it out because I was really, really nervous last week, like, I told you guys, I started off Saturday morning. I was last week, Saturday. Like, oh my gosh, the structure of that ground zero is not going to work because these people are not going to let me just be a sub. <laughs> just want to be a sub. They're not going to let me because of my, both my credentials and just my impact, you know, my practice. So I said, I'm probably not going to be able to do a long-term sub assignment. I'm probably, unfortunately, it's going to be like, Take a, you know, you have a teacher that's out for two weeks because they have a, some kind of medical situation or family situation. I'll go into another person's classroom for two weeks. Then everybody knows that's not my classroom, but the subbing I'm doing right now, they don't have a classroom teacher, which is why they keep trying to treat me like the classroom teacher. But anyway, so I, was, I had to, that's another thing I had to talk through. So I'm subbing and, um, I just want to say this. This and this is what this, this is what the, my colleague is talking about when she says she's in awe of me. Those sixth graders, and not just the sixth grade, is all of you know. It's just just kids in general. They've been without a regular teacher. Number one. Number two. They experienced. Um, they went through the pandemic. Their sixth grade, that pandemic impacted them when acad their academic career was starting to become more complex around third, second and third grade. 
Up until that time, they are learning school is about social skills, foundational skills, foundational academic skills. But right at third grade is where it starts getting complex. That's where they start testing our kids in the United States at third grade. And that's when the pandemic happened and the world shut down, including schools. So the sixth graders I'm working with have been hit pretty bad. So they've been hit bad and behavior is communication. So whereas other people will look at that sixth grade group and go, their behaviors are off the chart. And they are <laughs> like they are, but I look at the, the, those behaviors and those baby, those behaviors are communicating to me things that they need structurally, communicating what they need structurally. And then I start putting those structures in place. So the kids are communicating to me their needs and I'm communicating solutions to them by way of structures. So let me go to the text and say something here. Hold on. There are two ways that the texts relate to the sixth grade classroom or any classroom. This is the work that I do. This is the intersection of education and social sciences. This is my, this is why I am doing what I do. Because as a social scientist, I see structural violence and I see how it, how the structural violence manifests on learners, on students. I see how it manifests on principals and teachers. But my primary interest is our student. Well, my primary interest is student. Our students? What's the subject here? My primary interest is students. <laughs> y'all know I, y'all know the grammar thing. My subject verb agreement, I, I get, I, I get off sometimes. I have to go back and check myself. I think I have that right. But anyway, um, and looking at how the structural violence of the world trickles down into like a basin for these children. And I pause because there's an episode I want to do for my other podcast about a particular zip code. And I've been, I mean, this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a few years, but I didn't, I didn't have enough language. I think this text here about structural violence is the, is the, is the text that I need to do that episode about this particular zip code. But anyway, that's, that's not, that's not why I'm here with you all, but I am danger. I'm in my, I am in my work. So this is, this is, this is the work I do. So if I don't get any plays on this, then I'll know you guys really aren't here for it, but this is, this is, this is my, my, my life, my life right here. So I'm sharing this with you. Hopefully you will have some appreciation for it, even if it's just because you're, you're getting to know me. Okay. So one part of the behavior, um, is relating to this structural violence. And I'm going to come back to that. But the other part of the behavior is the fact that they haven't had, um, you know, they haven't had good instruction for a number of reasons. Okay. So what happens, what happens, what did the text say? I'm going to read from the book, you guys. Structural violence leads its victims to counter violence. This counterviolence is not directed at the sources, beneficiaries, or actors um, that's furthering the injustices. Instead, victims of structural violence tend to perpetrate counterviolence in their own communities through domestic violence, sexual violence, crimes, addictions, mental illness, and suicides. 
and in the case in the case of my sixth grade classroom, behaviors. Fighting, cursing, not doing the work, not following the teachers, not sitting, you know, <clears throat> not staying safe in their seat. Because I, I, I hesitate saying stay in your seat because I really envision a seatless classroom where kids aren't sitting down. <clears throat> but there is a time, there is a time you have to be in your seat for safety purposes and for order. And so you have to sit down <laughs> and they didn't want to do, they don't want to do that. And so I see the counter violence show up in that way. And I feel obligated, like I said, to put structures in place to counter that counter violence where other people will look at that sixth grade classroom and they say the kids are problematic or they'll blame parents. Parents are problematic and there are, there are times, but I had to talk, I called and talked to four or five families this week and it was one family, one mom who wanted to argue, like she came locked and loaded and I let her, I let her release on me. Because I understood. Now the young, younger teacher me, I don't think I would have argued with her, but I would not have, I would not have appreciated the situation for the situation. You know, I would have been more set on making my point. But this was different. I still wanted to make my point, but I had to do two. I, I had another objective when that mom was unloading on me. I wanted her to know that I got it. It was important for her, for me to let her know I understood exactly what she was saying. And if the roles were reversed, I'd probably be saying the same thing. That was my number one objective. I had another objective calling because I wanted some a different behavior from her child. But I couldn't even go there with about the child. I had to first talk to her, you know, and let her know I get it. And I had to really prove that. She didn't just let me say, I get it. You know, somebody, we talk about emotional intelligence. By the way, I just finished the second half of that episode on emotional intelligence because I had listened to the first half twice. The second half was, it was okay, but the, the richness of that episode is in the first half. But anyway, I finished it. And one of the things about emotional intelligence is being able to recognize someone else's emotions, being able to recognize it and understand it. And sometimes when somebody's coming to you with a problem, we want to fix it. We want to fix it or we want to minimize it. Sometimes what you should just do is sit in it with them. Lament with them. Relate with them. But that is an emotional intelligence. Which is, you know, which is something that I've been processing about me struggling in my social life, right? We'll, we'll process that at another time. So when this mom was going off, it, going off on me, you know, first of all, she doesn't know me personally. I mean, yes, I'm the one that made the phone call. I'm the one that's talking to her about her son, but she doesn't know me. And I couldn't just say, I get it. I had to tell, like, get in the trenches with her. And what I did was I started telling her stories like, hey, let me talk to you. Let me tell you, you're saying what my mama told me. So I could, and I would tell, I would and then I started saying, like, my mama told me, and then then the mother would go, yep, yep. And then i say, and I'm not a mom, but I'm an aunt. And let me tell you some things I'd say to my, my nieces when they go to school. Let me tell you some things I'd say to the principal when, 
when they go to school. And so the, this particular mom was like, yes. So when I showed that mother, I got it. And it was only then could I then talk to her ch- about her, ch- her son's behavior. You know what I mean? Now, so, I mean, I've had to do this before and, you know, it, it's, and it's, it's not a one and done thing, you know, um, it's just, it's just anyway, but I looked at that mom because I knew that society wants to blame kids for being broken. They don't want to blame the structural world for breaking the kids. We and educators, I don't, but I'm going to say we because it's my industry. We want to talk about parents. They don't do enough. Okay. But let's, let's dig into that. Most likely you have a mom that's really focused, prioritizing survival. How are we going to eat? How are we going to have a roof over our, over our head? How are we going to stay safe? And when you are at, remember, we've been talking about self-actualization, Bloom's taxonomy, right? And when you're at the bottom of that hierarchy, really just focusing on physiological needs, unfortunately, academic needs aren't, aren't prioritized. That seems basic. That seems like common sense. That's a, a basic reality. That when somebody is focused on survival, they're not going to be able to focus on academic norms and academic standards. And would be nice. So if you don't know how to serve that child, when that child leaves that parent and comes to you in your classroom, that child is your responsibility. You don't have the luxury of blaming parents. You've got to have the skill set and the capacity to serve that child regardless of what's going on at home. Because you can't control that. You can only control what happens in your classroom. Oh boy. So anyway. So that's what that's what I wanted to share with you all. That um, it's been good for me to get back in the classroom and to see that. You know, I write about this. This is what I write about. It's what I... I train for the, the, the consultant, the, the two clients that I'm working with. One is, um, going really, what I love, what, what I'm really excited is really, there is, that work that I'm going to be doing with that client isn't about, um, behaviors, but more about, academic outcomes, uh, which is interesting, right? Um, and it still has a social context to it. And then the second client, there are a lot of behavioral issues. And so that is going to be about putting structures in place. I'm going to be putting structures in place for both clients. <laughs> and I have to be careful because like I told, I told one, I said, the danger of working with me is that I've already seen this problem. Or are you all, you're new to this problem. I'm not new to this problem. I've studied this problem. I've, I've solved this problem many times over. So I can come into this environment. I can fix it for you right away. And what I have to learn, <laughs> this is the problem. Like me not having FE, what I have to learn is that it's not just about solving it. It's about engaging the people who need to understand the solution and helping them choose that solution. 
Very similar to what I do with students. So I've got a learning curve, y'all. So we'll see. You know, I'm sure I'm going to bump my head, but yeah, it's the social context. So anyway, I wanted to share that. The, 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 the being in that classroom is just reminding me of the social context, the social violence, um, and how it manifests into student behaviors as problematic and how the why people really struggle with meeting the needs of kids when they come to the classroom exhibiting behaviors like that. Why they fail to solve the problem is because they're treating the problem, the students as though they're the problem. They're problematizing the child instead of they don't, they, they do not want to take a look at the structural violence in which that child lives in. All right. I'm going to move on to my third. My third point, so I've talked about business, I've talked about this classroom, I want to talk about this conflict I'm having with my heart coach. And I want to link it to the fourth point about my social life. And then I'd like to start closing, <laughs> right? Because I think this is really what's at the heart for me in terms of structural violence on a personal level, right? Okay, and and that is going to help you to better understand why this, why I why I had to change course for this business and I had to move forward and do more solo work. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to subbing, but I will not go back to being an employee, an agent of the system. I'm not going to do that. I don't think so. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But I, I don't think so. But if I have to, it'll have to be a serious situation. So, you know, I've been battling my, my heart coach and I, we've been dancing and every time I think we've, we've got it, we don't, we don't have it. So, uh, I, I don't, I have some theories. I have some theories and I don't have time to linger here, but we, my heart coach and I have been, uh, battling since the middle of July, at least. So two months. But truthfully, I think we started battling. Before that, just I'm having a hard time locating the start of it. But I know that there was a time um, in May. Because my mom, my um oh, well. It was May. Just leave it alone. <laughs> so it was May and uh, I had a session with her. And in the session, she didn't give me something I felt I needed. But instead of wrestling with her on the thing that I needed, I rerouted the conversation. I redirected it because I had not only understood that she didn't give me what I needed. I also made a judgment that she couldn't give it to me based on some other work we've done based on just, just the con. Yeah. I would just say the history of our work together. And I was like, she can't do it. So I rerouted. And I got an e. I got a. I got an email from her. 
which said, um, that she felt uncomfortable and wanted to know if it would be okay for her to send me an email detailing her discomfort. <laughs> this is odd to me. It's partially, it's not completely odd. The part that makes sense is that that's data. I get it. That's data for her and she wants it to be data for me. And and basically her theory is if I can make her uncomfortable, then that might be good data for me to have as I'm trying to build social relationships in the world. This is a whole can of worms. I don't even know if I should open this up right now at the end of this dang episode. But anyway, we're here. I'm going to try. Um, so um, I understand that, that if she's thinking that that discomfort is relevant to how other people experience me in the world. She wanted to get that data to me fresh while it was fresh. It was fresh for her. It was fresh for me. So she asked me, could she email me? It? And I was, I don't do well with texts like that because I, I analyze it. And oftentimes I analyze it more than what it could be. So I need more than text. So I'm like, don't, I was like, well, if it's bad, don't send it. I said, how I emailed it. I said, if it's bad, don't send it. We should just talk. Well, this is the problem that I'm having with her. She's not self-aware enough about why she sent it anyway. So she, she sent the email anyway. And she said, I don't know if it's bad or good, but I'm going to send it anyway. And if it's wrong, then we can talk about it. That's harm. See, I've already told you what I needed. You, you, you bypass that because it was something that you needed, you wanted. And she doesn't see that. She doesn't see that at all. So it's okay. So she sent the, um, she sent it. I skimmed it. I wouldn't. And to what I was worried about happened, I started seeing keywords. My brain started happening. You know? So, um, I think I sent a, a pretty direct email. I don't remember. We ended up getting on the phone. And to make a long story short, her perception of the experience was not my perception, which is normal. That does, I mean, that's fine. But I couldn't resonate with her in terms of her feeling her dis discomfort. And she said, she said in the email, That I punished her. I might be pushing two stories together. But um, I might be. But anyway, no, it's all the same. She said I punished her by not telling her, like, by not allowing us to move in a particular direction in that conversation. Once I decided she couldn't help me, once I decided she couldn't help me and I, re I was like, okay, you can't help me. Let's go and talk about something else. She said that I was punishing her. And I'm like, how am I punishing you? Because <laughs> to punish you, then you feel entitled. You feel entitled to me having access to some things I have to offer. 
And, and, and let's, let's talk about that entitlement. I said, we're not even in a real relationship. It's not a real friend. We're not family. We're not friends. This is client patient. Excuse me. Yeah. Not client patient. This is provider patient or client, provider client, whatever. I'm not obligated to you. <laughs> I'm not obligated to you on a personal, emotional level. So for you to say you felt punished, bring some type of emotionality to the table. Okay, let's talk about it. If you feel like I'm punishing you, you've got to acknowledge the emotion that's behind that. She didn't want to. She didn't want to because that was now going to make her vulnerable. To have to talk about her needs. I get it. I get it. But this is what, that was the door she opened when she insisted on talking about how I made her feel. And then what she wanted to do, instead of talking about those feelings as hers to own, she wanted to juxtapose, um, to, to, what's the word, project that onto me and transfer, that's the word. She wanted to transfer that onto me as though this is an opportunity for me to grow and learn. Yeah, it's an opportunity for me to grow and learn if I'm going to own that emotion of yours. But I'm not going to own it because we're not in a relationship for me to to own your emotions. We're not in a relationship to own your emotions. And even if I was going, I do care about her, but you have it. We need to be in a relationship where you also have to take ownership of your emotions. And your actions. And you've got to do that first, ma'am. And she didn't want to do it. And this is where our, how our work overlaps. Our, she's a trained psychologist. I'm a trained sociologist and educator. We have very, very similar practice in terms of human. We're both focused on human development. Both of us. Our route to human development is a little, it's slightly different. It overlaps. So she's not talking to someone who's not versed in human development. You understand what I'm saying? So oftentimes, and we've been working together for seven years, I'll counter her and then I'll, I'll explain and, and I'll teach her. But something has happened to me in the last six months as I've been thinking about the last four years. So the last four years of my work, I've been in, in I've been in spaces where I've been overqualified. Like I gotta make money. You know, I talked about climbing the ladder, but I still have been overqualified just because of the work, because of who I am. Because I'm a I'm a PhD holder, I'm a doctorate. Most people, when you are a PhD holder, there's something about that that process, that experience that retrains the brain. My brain has been rerouted <laughs> in a very significant way. Um, that um, I have a friend of mine who said that she thinks all PhD holders are crazy. And I understand that because your brain is restructured fundamentally in terms of like how you look, how we look at assumptions in the world. We, most of us are governed by a lot of scripts and assumptions. Well, I'm now, I'm already trained to do that as a social scientist, but I was even, it was heightened now to do that at the doctoral level. Anyway, so that's number one. 
Number two, as a person that has started a, I've started an organization from the ground, from an idea, right? So that's an intellectual capacity that a lot of people just don't have. They just, just don't, they've, if they have it, they've not been able to realize it, if you will, practice it. And then, and then I have 30 years of experience as an educator. So I bring, you know, I don't mean to sound arrogant, just bear with me, but I bring, I bring a lot intellectually to the table, even if you don't, <laughs> when you listen to me in this podcast, you'd be like, it don't sound like, <laughs> I know <laughs> I'm giving you the personal vulnerable mushy part of me in this project, right? I don't give you the professional me in this project, but anyway, intellectually, professional, anyway, so I'm overqualified. I've been overqualified in those positions, and that's fine. I had to do it for to make money. But what was fascinating in those positions is that even though I didn't have the wasn't making the money, and I didn't have the status or the stature, the positionality, they wanted the knowledge that I had. They wanted the knowledge, they and they felt entitled to it. Uh, and I see a parallel with my heart coach. I absolutely see a parallel. So I became very skilled because I don't share my knowledge with people. I think, and I had a, listen, not I, uh, the, the husband and wife team that I talk about, personality hacker, they did an episode and they said TE users don't share their knowledge because knowledge is power. We use our knowledge. We don't share it. When I share my knowledge, that's a love language for me. I like you. I care about you. I'm sharing. Hence this project, right? But otherwise, I'm not sharing it. Unless I have, I'm doing, I do with my, my knowledge. I produce with my knowledge. I don't share it. So once people know I have it, they wanted me to share it. And I'm like, no. And I've had people who have tried to threaten me for it. Well, you're, 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 that's what you're supposed to do. Not the, the, I've been listening to a lot of the politics around the uh, Donald Trump indictments. And there have been people who have been trying to take, so there's a state indictment and there are people who don't want the, to be tried at the state level. They want to be tried at the federal level. So they've been trying to make an argument that they were federal officers and the color of their position I love that language, the color of the position or the color of the law, right? Well, the color of my position is, does not require that knowledge that I have, does not require that doctorate, does not require the knowledge to be an entrepreneur, does not require the knowledge to be an executive. It doesn't require that knowledge. This position does not require that knowledge. So yeah, I have it, but you're not entitled to it. And now that I'm saying that, it makes me think about a lady who told me when she was my supervisor, she felt like I had 150% to give, and she was upset that I was only giving her 100%. What? My job requires this. I'm giving it to you at 100%, probably a little bit more, but you feel like because I have 150%, you want it. So I've, I've learned to juggle that for a long time now, and and it is what it is. You're not getting all of me. I know my worth and I know what you're paying me, right? So anyway, so my heart coach, 
for the past seven years has been learning from me because I've been sharing. I've been all, you know, and I've been sharing because I haven't, uh, haven't had the opportunities to, to talk through. You know, sometimes I need to talk through my, my knowledge, right? My learnings. I have to talk through it, but I still do it in the space of power where I have to, I control that. Well, what was happening is that I realized that she wasn't giving me recognition for me teaching her. I got to a place where I'm like, she's not letting me, she's not acknowledging that she's growing because she's working with me as a, I'm, I'm her client. I'm her patient. I'm her patient and she's growing from me. No, doesn't that sound arrogant? I know. I'm an INTJ8. Um, what's the word solipsistic? They said that this one uh, guy from the podcast, I can't remember, talked about INTJ women. Anyway, I'm not even sure if I'm using that word right. And I really have to start closing now. But she, um, and so she gives me, I don't pay full scale for her services. And I've always felt guilty about that. And the reason why I don't pay, because I was, I came to her in hardship, right? You guys know I talked about it at the start of this conversation. My world fell apart. I couldn't afford it. So she gave me a sliding skill. And then as I made more money, you know, with the notion that, like, once I stay in that level of money, then I would go to her full, full, I would pay full scale. But obviously, when I lost a job in June, I went back to having no money. So she's been really good in that way. What I wanted her to do to say is, what I'd love for her to say is, you don't have to pay me full skill because I'm learning from you. It's an exchange. We're bartering. I'm helping you and you're helping me. I want her to say that. But I don't feel like I can say that. Or I don't want to ruin our relationship if I say that. Because I could say that and she could reject it. I could say that she would laugh and that would not be good. It would piss me off, right? And then I would have to make a point. But I did get her to make a comment. I think I asked her like in some way. I said, I don't, I said, I said, do you know I come in this room for seven years, for seven years and I don't have an impact? I said, I'm an impact person. I impact the people around me for learning. I said, for seven years, I've been in this room with you. And I don't get the feedback from you that I'm having an impact on you. Because that's not the nature of the relationship. Okay, that's fine. But how long do I need to be in a space with you where I'm going to be cut off from myself? How long do we need to do this? Right? So then I have to make an argument of number for a number of reasons. How long are we going to do this? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How long are we going to do it? And somehow in all, in all of that, she came and said that she is a better practitioner because of me. And I said, why have you not shared that with me? As a, as a teacher, I let my learners know when I'm growing from, from them, with them. I let them know when I'm, I'm out of my element. This particular coach doesn't do, that's not her style. And I, I have a theory about why that is. And that theory is growing stronger and louder and louder and louder. And 
I think she knows I have a theory on something. She's wanting me to give it to her, right? So I can come and I can tell her, I can now theorize you. And, uh, and she's in the position of power to go, that's not true because she's the client. She's the provider. And then, no, I'm not going to run the risk of her using her power to negate what I do in the world. But because of, I've, I've entered into a power under relationship with her. See, coming in as her client, I'm, I situated myself as power under. And I'm willing to do that as long as I'm growing. But we've hit a place where I can't grow anymore from her. And that power under is no longer acceptable. So that's what's happening, right? I'm not growing anymore. Not because she's not amazing, because I, I came to her for a reason. I grew, right? Our time really is done. What she wants to do is learn how to help me at the next level. But what she's asking me to do is to teach her so that she could help me at the next level. But then she doesn't want to give me credit for teaching her. So anyway, I think it's, it's unfortunate. I don't want, I personally don't want the relationship to end. What I've been asking her to do is let's let's come up with a different relationship. Still a professional, like um, I'm still okay with doing a pro, uh, provider client uh, client relationship. But like I, I said to her, why don't we co-write a book together? I think that would be amazing. That would be a powerful ass book, and we still can work together doing some work in that construct. And she says she didn't have the bandwidth right now. I think she's afraid. That's okay. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm a little afraid too. But anyway, so I want to just say this, and I'm I'm going to close. Start closing here. So that is that is a big theme right now that is blocking us from doing some other work. The other work that we we want to do, we try to do, but we struggle here for a couple of, for a couple of reasons I already mentioned. I have had some social goals. Like, how do I build my social community? And I'm not, you know, I don't have it. I mean, I struggle in that. I don't struggle as much. I don't struggle as much now as I did when I came to her. But she has not, she's not able to recognize the pattern of the struggle. So what she's trying to do is link how I make her feel and linking that to that is what's probably happening to you as you're trying to make friends and relationships. And that's possibly true. Oh my God. I'm going to have to read to you from another book. Oh my goodness gracious. Something is coming to me. Hold on a second. I'm going to read to you from the complete Enneagram by Dr. Beatrice Chestnut um, about the social five. Now you guys hear me say I'm a social eight. But you also will hear, and, and as a social eight, when I'm stressed, I'll drop to a five. When I'm in my highest self, I'll integrate the two, right? So that is my relationship to five. But I have another relationship to five. I consider, um, five, I'm, I feel like I'm an eight, eight, five, three. That's part of my tri type. And, um, Dr. Beatrice doesn't really subscribe to the tri, tri, tri type, which is why I don't talk about it often, but, I do think that it has some merit for me to take those, take my number, a number from each of the cluster, the head cluster, 
I'm a five, the heart cluster, I'm a three, and the gut cluster, I'm an eight. So I'm an eight, five, three, right? So if you look at me as a five, the five part of me, I'm a social five. I know that part. So I want to read from this part of the text about the social five. And I'm going to connect it to my heart coach, to my social world, and the structural violence. And I'm going to try to close. Okay. Wish me luck. I got 10 minutes. For social fives, the passion of a virus is connected to knowledge. A virus, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, is connected to knowledge. These fives don't need the nourishment relationships provide because their passion for knowledge somehow compensates for what they might get from direct human contact. It's as if they have an intuition that they can find everything they need through the mind. Needs for people and for emotional sustenance get displaced into a thirst for knowledge. That's me, y'all. That's me. The name given to the subtype is totem which communicates their need for super ideals or the need to relate to people who share their intellectual values, interests, and ideas. The image of a totem suggests both height and a character that is constructed like an object rather than a human being. These fives do not relate to regular people in everyday life. They relate to easily idealized experts who share their ideals, to people who displays what, display what they see as outstanding characteristics based on shared values and knowledge and who they can keep at a certain distance. So that's true. So like that intellectual capacity that I have, first of all, the, the, the my world is fine when everything in my mind is fine. When my world makes sense and fits together in my mind like a puzzle, then I'm happy, right? So it has, it always say this, first it has to make sense in my mind. Then I now have learned to make sense in the physical world, right? I had to learn how to do that. The first thing for me is it has to make sense in my mind. Then I transpose that onto my physical world. And now what I'm trying to focus on is building a social life where it makes sense based on my love of knowledge, my love of and being an expert status, like I, and you always hear me talk about, I'm not an expert in ty- ty- typology. Why? Because I value expert status because I'm an expert in my field. So I'm not getting ready to bastardize the typology. Those people who I think are experts, right? I think the husband and wife team, they're, they're like geniuses around it. It's amazing, right? And I love that. I value it. It's attractive to me. So when I'm engaging with another person, I need for them to give, in order for me to be genuinely connected to them, I need them to connect to me in my expertise and I need to connect to them in their expertise. That's how I'm, that's the lovemaking that I want to do. It's intellectual for me. Okay. So her inability to understand that. So yes, do I have a social problem? Yes. Well, here's why. It's not because I make people feel bad, which, yeah, it's a problem, right? But am I making the right people feel bad? See, I believe I'm making the wrong people feel bad. I'm making, the, and here's why, because you aren't engaging with me in a particular way. And so therefore, when I engage my way, it makes you feel bad. But if you were the right person in the way I would engage in the world, you would be attracted to how I engage. So, for example, I'm starting to make those connections. I'm starting to build those friends. I don't have a level of intimacy with those people. Maybe I won't with those people. But I'm learning how to find the people that I can connect to intellectually. 
And then we learn to have fun and we play together, right? Because we have that intellectual connection. And that is delicious. And my heart coach isn't understanding that. Now, I could break that down and explain it to her, but I don't feel like I should have to do that and pay you for you to work with me without you giving credit that you're learning from me and you're growing from me. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. And the way I connect this situation with my heart coach to structural violence is this idea that I'm going to go read the text, the first text. Hold on. The function of structural violence is to establish and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities among individual social groups and social classes. Inequal inequalities of rights, responsibilities, and opportunities among people of a society are unlikely to ever be established and maintained voluntarily. This Check out this next sentence. Rather, their establishment requires coercion in the form of imminent initiating physical violence, which is gradually complemented by a consciousness of submission. My heart coach wants me to have a consciousness of submission as it relates to her because she feels that that's a normal client-provider relationship. It is a normal thing for the client to come in there and submit to her expertise. But when, and that's fine, But when you are no longer giving me what I need, I can no longer submit to that. Number one. And number two, I cannot be in an extended relationship with somebody that requires me to be submissive because of who I am as an eight and what I believe in the the world, right? And this last piece is this. She understands structural violence. When it's across the street. When I've tried to show her how structural violence was showing up in the room, it made her uncomfortable. And then she wanted to defend it and debate it. And like I told her, I said, I can make this clear to you. Because she she started to use language like, well, we went to other psychologists. They would say, I said, yes. And if I went to those other psychologists in my fullness, not as a client, but as the the, in my area of expertise, I, I'm more than confident that I can make the, this point. But the fact that I'm in the submissive role with you is blemishing, is limiting, delimiting your ability to value what I'm saying because of power. Anyway, so we got a, pow- a power problem. And I think that that's what's, uh, what I think is something I'm trying to contend with in this so this thing uh in the social world that we do have a social world that's built built on inequities. And in order for those inequities to be maintained, people have to have a spirit of submission. And I don't have that a spirit of submission or consciousness of submission or of inferiority. I don't. I buck up against it. I'm mindful of what that is. I'm mindful of the systems that re- that require that spirit of submission. I challenge it. And that is what happens to me at work and for playing my social. And so being in a position where now I'm being able to build my own business, albeit one-on-one client services, that's not the way I wanted to do it. But maybe if that's what I have to do, 
I will do it, right? So I, so I can be in control of when I'm required to submit. I control when I submit. You don't. The employer does not control when I submit. I control that. And now I need to build a social life where I can determine how I'm going to submit to people, right? To, um, because I'm hoping to build a, a social world with other people who are trying to buck the system, who are trying to interrupt that structural violence. Don't come to me and act, ask me to submit to a world that is structurally violent and then asking me to act out of it and take drugs or to drink alcohol because I'm trying to be complicit in it. No, I'm trying to interrupt that. And if in interrupting that means I'm not going to have friends or I'm not going to have lovers, then so be it. Spiritually, that's what I have to do. I don't think so. I just think I need to do a better job of finding my people, finding my forest or my my squad, if you will. So I'm not sure if I've done a good job of connecting all of this to structural violence, but it is a thing in the world. <laughs> These inequities exist. The only way they can exist is to, we excuse me, but we have to be mind fucked into them. And then we move about in our world as though it's normal. It's not normal. And then we're not healthy. And like kids, it shows in our behaviors. All right. And I'm not complicit in it, nor do I want a social world. That requires me to be complicit in it. You guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, give it a heart. If this conversation about um, the relationship between the structural world and the social and emotional self, if any of that relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com, Twitter, yournidom1, Facebook, and YouTube, yournidom. Let me give you your assignment. I want you to think about structural violence. It is a thing in the world, right? And uh, we, it, it would probably be good for me to spend more time talking about structural violence in order to name this episode that. But you have to trust me. But structural violence exists in the world. Who are you in it? Are you are you an actor per- perpetrating it? Are you complicit doing that submission thing, or are you interrupting? And I think this is one of the things I love about the solo community. They're disrupting a lot of that. You guys, I got to (laughs) go. What are you doing with the, the structural violence? It's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.